please stand if you're able uh, for the reading of God's word. This is from Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Habin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Canaanite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Habin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him 
and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peck in his temple. And so on that day God subdued Habin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Habin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Habin, the king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we know that you, uh, you are teaching us things through all of your word, even these strange stories, even these gruesome stories. Lord, there's, there's word of your goodness, of your protection, of how you are fighting for your people, of how you are the God who saves. You are the God who goes out before Israel's armies. Uh, you are the God who goes out before your people, the church, that you fight for us and that we go out and are possessed of your strength and not our own. And so, Lord, we pray you help us to see that. We pray that you would illuminate our minds to the text, that the Spirit would help us to understand and see the beauty of Christ in these words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, whenever we come to a, a text like this, whenever there's a narrative story in the Bible, we, have, uh, we approach the text with a cultural disadvantage to understanding it. And that is that um, the disadvantage is that in all of our great stories, when we go to see a great movie or read a great novel or any great story in our culture, uh, the story revolves around uh, how the, the day is won or the victory is won or the battle is won by the brave or the strong or the wise or at least the lucky. But it all of it revolves around the human characteristics of the people involved in the story. Uh, and so uh, that's what we look for. And so then we pro approach the Bible the same way. We look at the Bible and we, we think the same thing. This must, be about, uh, this must be about the wisdom of Deborah. This must be about the strength of Barak. This must be about the cunning of Jael. This must be about something. And so we all battle each other about who's the real hero of the story, who we should tell the kids to emulate, uh, not Jael kids if you're in here. Um, and... Uh, and we become just like Paul says in you know, 1 Corinthians, I follow Deborah, I follow Barak, I follow Jael. And we miss the point entirely, which is that the Bible is very different than our stories. Even though the Bible tells one story, even though it's 66 books written by 40 authors over the period of a, a couple millennia telling the same story uh, of the main hero, it's always the same hero in the story. The hero that comes and saves the day is always Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the main hero of the story and what and who all the stories are ultimately about. And although the people in the text are oftentimes and can be very extraordinary people, they are always support players for the main star who is Yahweh, the God who delights to fight for his people. 
Uh, and that's the big idea of this whole passage is that God, the, our God, is a God who delights to fight for us. He has fought for us and he is fighting for us against all of our enemies. Uh, and that is where we find our peace and our strength, not in our own power. Um, which is really good news, right? <laughs> it's not about how strong you become. It's not about how wise you become. The Bible is literally littered with very ordinary people who showed up and trusted God and who God did extraordinary things through. And so that really opens it wide open to anybody. The Bible says that God's eyes are roaming to and fro, not looking for the strong and the wise and the powerful. He's looking for people who trust him. Anybody can do that. And that's what this story is really all about. That's what happens in this story. So let's look. We're going to look at the main players in the story. And by looking at the main players and what they're doing, they're going to show us something about ourselves. But even more importantly, they're going to show us something amazing about our God. And that's always the point of any, any, good, any good sermon, any good passage. So let's start trying to figure out what God is like by looking at the power couple du jour, Deborah and Barak. So first, let's look at Deborah and Barak. The, uh, the literary beauty of this passage, and it is a beautiful, beautifully written story when you break out all the parts and pieces and how the author has laid it out. Uh, the narrative beauty almost gets swallowed up in, by the controversy of poor Deborah, who happens to be the only recorded female judge in all the history of Israel. And so, uh, because of that, that makes her everyone's favorite star witness when the debates start rolling about what, women's ministry, you know, what, what, what women should be in ministry and how, uh, you know, what roles women are able to play. You know, it depends what role you are or what side you're on in that debate. Deborah's always called to the stand. Uh, in that debate, which most of which of those debates completely misses the point of this story. And although her role is crucial here, she's, in, she's important. She's an extraordinary woman for sure. But God is trying to teach us something else through what's happening. So first let's look at Deborah. Deborah, her name means honeybee. It's kind of cute, right? <laughs> she is a prophetess of Israel. That's the first thing it tells us. And that shouldn't, that's not controversial. At least it shouldn't be. Uh, prophetesses, women who held that, women who were prophets in the Old Testament and the New are not uncommon. Miriam, Moses' sister, was called a prophetess. Huldah in the, in the Reformations of Josiah was a prophetess. Isaiah married a woman who was a prophetess. They were like the ultimate prophetic power couple. Um, there's positive and negative examples of prophets in the, in the history of Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a, a Philip the evangelist has four daughters who are, who are prophetesses. Um, and so the fact that she's a prophetess uh, isn't rare, although it is significant. She is the mouthpiece of God to the nation at that time. When she summons Barak, it's not Deborah summoning Barak, it's Deborah in her prophetic office summoning uh, this man to come and, and, and respond to God's summon and save Israel. Uh, what's remarkable is that she's a judge of Israel. And what's remarkable about, about that is that every other judge in the book of Judges is a, is some, is a military leader 
who when there's a, a, during a time of oppression of Israel by her enemies, God raises up a man, a military leader, who then goes and leads the battle against this enemy and, and defeats them and brings Israel into a time of, of peace and prosperity. And yet Deborah, the thing that's different about Deborah's time as a judge is that she is a judge of Israel during a period of oppression. They have been oppressed by these Canaanites and these 900 iron chariots for 20 years. And yet Deborah is still acting in some capacity as a judge in Israel. She's acting more in the sense of Moses, where Moses was called to, ju- to be the judge of Israel and to hear the hardest cases of the land. And probably the same structure is happening in this. Deborah is sitting under a palm tree between Ramah and Bethel. That's not, a, that's not a quaint reference to an oasis. That's a royal symbol. She's holding royal court. She's judging the hard cases of Israel, probably, and she's receiving... Uh, her scope of influence is wide and she's receiving those cases to come to her up the chain of command. So she is, it is no small thing what she's doing as a judge of Israel and yet it's an internal judge. She's a judge who is un, at the same time under oppression. Why is that? How is that, how is that possible? Well, we get our answer, at least some of it, when we look at Barak. Now, Barak, uh, one spelling of Barak in Hebrew means blessing. This is a different spelling, and it literally means lightning. <laughs> His name is literally like lightning boy. He, lightning is the weapon of choice of both Yahweh and Yahweh's rival god, Baal, of the Canaanites. That God is the god of the storm, and lightning bolts were his main weapon. And so this kid has been named uh, after the weapon of choice of the gods to be the weapon of the gods, uh, and yet his father's name is Abinoam, which means father of pleasantness, which probably means and, and speaks to his upbringing. He was probably raised in a very pampered and very luxurious environment, and he kind of brings to mind the kid who's trained in martial arts his whole life, but it's never really been in a real fight. Uh, who is at home mastering his moves on call of duty while at the same time Israel is being crushed by a real enemy and he's not stepping up. He's not stepping up. Uh, But apparently, he's the best they've got because he's 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 from the northernmost part of Israel. Deborah's holding court kind of in the middle of Israel, and she summons him all the way up from 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to come and be this leader. Our God summons him, so apparently he is, he's the best uh, that they've got, and yet he's not in the fight. Uh, there's something going on. How do we know there's something going on with him? Because listen, when Deborah, the prophet of Israel, the mother of Israel, that's who she is. She's really the mother of Israel. She's probably an older woman, a wise woman. She's certainly an extraordinary woman. Uh, She is mothering Israel through this dark time. And she comes to Barak and says, the Lord has called you to go out and fight and go into combat. And what does Barak say? Dude says, I'll go if my mom can come with me. 
I'll go if you go with me, Mom. But if not, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. And you can clear, Deborah is like clearly surprised. She's surprised, but not surprised. She gives him that look that your wife gives you when she like knows the, how you're going to like fail and, and you do it anyways, you know? She asks you to do something to help her and she knows you're not and then it pans out that way, you know? <laughs> Come on, fellas. Don't tell me, don't tell me I'm the only one. Um, there you go. Thank you. So Deborah is, she's surprised, but not surprised. Uh, and Deborah's like, what? All right, but here's the deal. Again, speaking as the prophet of the Lord, this will not go well. I'll go with you, but the glory will not be yours. God is going to give glory and hand over your enemy into the hand of a woman. And so what's happening here? You know, what has happened in Israel. Uh, you know, what's happened in Israel is, is pretty clear. What's happened is that the men have abandoned their posts. And the reality, what it's trying to teach us is that the, when leaders abandon their post, it can be every bit as just... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. I got to take this. Hello. Yeah, I'm in the middle of I'm in the middle of preaching right now. Okay. Just I'll be I'll be back in a moment. Sorry. All right. Okay. Okay. Got it. All right. Okay. See. See when leaders when they abandon their post, <laughs> things get confusing. Uh, at least if not awkward, and people are like, whoa, what's going on right now? This is not what's supposed to be happening. What are we supposed to do? I don't know, and everybody starts looking at one another for guidance. What are we supposed to do here? Imagine that on a national scale, uh, you know, when, women, when, when leaders abandon their post, it can be destructive, at least as destructive as abuse. Abuse is easier to see. Abuse is violent when, when men... Uh, you know, when leaders abuse their power and they attack someone, uh, it's pretty clear to see, and it's direct. Like my assistant Wesley here. When leaders abuse their power, that's easy to see. How about two? Oh! That's a direct attack, but let's say I'm a leader and I just randomly just abandon my post and let things fall out how they will and I just start throwing things everywhere. Chaos. If I abandon my post as a leader in the church and I allow things to happen that I should be stopping or controlling, the same amount of damage, the same amount of chaos can occur. And that's what we see here. The men have abandoned their posts. They're at home playing Call of Duty while they have been oppressed by this enemy for 20 years. And it's not about their strength. God is, is saying, it's my strength. I will deliver you. And finally, Barak laments, or, or he relents, and he decides to go. But the big lesson that we learn here, really, it's not 
about the wisdom of Deborah. It's not about the strength of Barak, but it's about Yahweh, the God who delights to fight for his foolish and weak people. That's what this is really all about. So let's look at the hero of the story, the God who fights for his people. You know, everybody's got that annoying friend that only calls you when they need something. <laughs> uh, you know who I'm talking about, right? Well, Israel is that is God's friend. That's God. That, Israel is God's friend. Israel is only calling God when they need something, right? That's something that theologians we call uh, the judges cycle. Listen to the, how this passage starts. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army, Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. And then the people cried out to the Lord for help. Man, it doesn't say something about sin. There's a, a, a commentator, a guy named Dale Davis. I'm just going to quote what he said because it's so perfect. He, talk, he reads this line and he says, this tells us something about sin. It's difficult to be creative in sin. There's a certain monotony about it. It's all been done before. It's simply that we do the same thing again. Sin is a boring routine. It's not a fresh excitement. The fast lane becomes the old rut. And evil never lends itself to originality. Hence, there are two problems with sin, the slavery of it and the staleness. Can I get an amen? And that's what we see. Israel is again falling into idolatry and sin. This is the fourth time they've done this since the book started. And we're only in chapter four. They're gonna do it eight more times that we know about before the book is over. In fact, you could pan out from there and really look at the entire history of the Bible from Genesis chapter three all the way through Malachi, and that's the story of Israel. They fall, they break the covenant. They break God's covenant. They fall into sin and idolatry. God brings destruction on them, and they, they feel that destruction. The destruction causes them to repent to the Lord. They repent, and then God delivers them over and over and over and over and over again. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Why? It's trying to teach us something. You are not going to keep the covenant. You are not going to earn your own salvation. It says it over and over and over again for a reason, because we're thick skulled. We need it. We need to be told a hundred times in a row. Let's talk, talking about what, the, what theologians call the judges' cycle: sin, slavery, repentance, salvation, repeat. Sin, slavery, repentance, salvation, repeat. That's what we do. Uh, that's what we do. That's who we are. I mean, that's, that's just what, that's, you know. Man, I want so badly for the Christian life to be this ongoing march to victory. Where I plant my flag on one hillside having victory over sin and march up to the next summit. Until I finally reach that place where I have conquered all sin victoriously. And I can stand while the sun goes down and my Captain Christian cape flowing in the breeze. <laughs> Victorious <laughs> over sin. But that's not really, that ain't how it is. Sin, 
suffering, slavery, repentance, salvation. Over time, does it get better? Yes, it gets better, but that's the pattern. And that who we are, who we are, what, it, what it's shown about us in this passage really sets us up for the main point. It's to contrast to us who God is and what God is like. And he is the God who delights to fight for his people. No, no matter how many times. You know, I'm, the friend, you know, if you're the friend, how do I, I know this personal experience. If you're the friend who only calls somebody because you want something, eventually they're not going to pick up the phone. Uh, God always picks up the phone. That's who he is. God always picks up that phone. How do we know? This is the fourth time in, uh, and they're crying out to God. And Deborah summons him and assures him right up front, what's up? I will give him into your hand. The Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go up before you? It's a guaranteed victory. All you got to do is show up. You can show up drunk. (laughs) Not really, but metaphorically. You can show up a mess, but you show up and you put your trust in God and his strength and not yours, it's a guarantee. It's a guaranteed win. Uh, and so, how does uh, Barak, how does the lightning boy, the weapon of the gods, win this battle? If we cheat and we look ahead to chapter 5, we see that God, the God of the storm, sends a legit storm. He sends a giant thunderstorm. He sends real lightning and he floods the plain of this river completely eliminating the tactical advantage of chariots. All of a sudden, they're just caught in the mud and they can't do anything. And then phase two, God sends them into a panic. He creates unreasonable fear in their hearts. And in that panic and in their fear, they abandon everything and just start running from Israel. Uh, We might call that, it's something we might call a turkey shoot. In chapter five, in the song commemorating this event, there's, in the the battle scenes, there's not, Barak isn't even mentioned by name, not even once. It's just Yahweh did this, Yahweh did that. Yahweh is the bringer of the storm. Yahweh is the defender and victor of his people. Over and over, Barak isn't even mentioned, right? And so, listen, That's the main point of this story. That's the main point of every story in the Bible. God is the God who fights for us. When we look at the cross of Jesus, it's a rich tapestry of imagery that's given to describe what it was that happened there. And one of the biggest ones is that that was the battlefield. When when, When Jesus submitted himself to be captured by the Romans and walk with that cross up that hill. He was walking to the battlefield where by his love uh, and by his, the, the, the being of who he was as the, as the sinless sacrifice, the son of God, the high priest of his people, he was, that cross was the battlefield by which he overcame and won the battle over Satan and disarmed them. The Bible says that at the cross, Jesus took away the weapon of the enemy. How? By dying for our sins 
and our sins being atoned for and covered, the enemy could no longer go to God and say, you must judge them and be on legal ground. That was true until the cross. Once the cross, there's no, we are not, our sin is not credited to us. Our sin has been forgiven by Jesus. We've been given his righteousness. The devil cannot accuse us to the Father. His only weapon taken away, victory won. And Christ fought a bloody battle to win that victory for us. But he's still fighting for us now. The book of Revelations talks about Jesus being enthroned as our king right now, marching across the earth, submitting to himself all of our enemies, one by one, all the enemies of God, until eventually even the enemy death will be submitted. He is fighting for us right now. Maybe that's why that cycle is still so much in effect because, that, you know, what I think is, like, I get all messed up and I'm, you know, super repentant about whatever sin I just, you know, did and I'm engaged in or the pattern I've just fallen back into and I'm like, repenting. I'm like, please, God, help me. And he comes in and cleans me up. He, like, fills me full of power, shows me his love, his compassion. is like, overwhelming. And I get cleaned up a little bit and I'm like, okay, God, I got it from here. Thank you. I got it from here, and I start like taking that credit and start walking around like, I'm getting ready to plant my flag. (coughs) Sin, slavery, repent, salvation. (sighs) He's not looking, he's not trying to help up the wise and the strong and the powerful. He's making a very clear point. None of us are that when it comes to sin. Because of our fallen natures, we are easy prey for sin. We will fall. The only way we, we, we have victory is by leaning hard into God and by his spirit being powerful in and through us. And so what God is looking for is not the wise, not the strong, not the lucky. Uh, he's just looking for people, anybody, who's willing to show up and trust him. That's why I love Jael. And that's why if there is a human hero in this story, it's Jael. Final, final part, final scene with Jael and Sisera and the tent peg. Probably not a big surprise for anybody who knows me that Jael is my favorite character in this story. If I, uh, by some miracle, we end up having a third daughter, Jael is on the top of the list for names. Uh... Clearly, she's a resourceful gal. But maybe, uh, maybe you're questioning the morality of all this. She basically, like, drew, drew, you know, got this man's confidence to bring him into her tent to murder him. Maybe you're, uh, you know, wondering about the morality of all that. Um, it's obviously rather graphic, and chapter 4 doesn't seem to condemn or praise Jael. It's kind of a moral, morally neutral act. But again, if we cheat, and we go to chapter 5, where the song is sung, there's no ambiguity. Jael is the hero of the story. Even says, most blessed of women is Jael. And then it goes on for 10 lines, with a slow motion, play-by-play, ultra graphic replay of the action of why it was exactly that Jael is most blessed of all women. Uh, 
Her name means wild mountain goat. <laughs> uh, but it really, it comes from a verb that means to ascend. That's how they named the goat. Goats would scurry up the mountain. And so uh, her name was really from a root that means to ascend. And uh, Jael is, she is the ultimate outsider. Right? When Deborah, in the first part of the story, prophesied that the victory would be given to a woman, what did you think? You all thought, well, Deborah, you know? Deborah's going to like walk up with the war hammer at the very end of the day and swing home for victory. Uh, but um, Deborah was ultimate insider, the ruler of Israel, a judge, a prophetess. But Jael is about as outsider as outsider gets. She's not a man. She's not a prophet. She's not even an Israelite. In fact, she's a distant relative of the father-in-law of Moses. And if we're talking about Moses' wife, Zipporah, she was a Cushite woman, which meant South Ethiopian. She's a black girl. Uh, and she is allied, her whole clan, uh, they're on the Canaanite side. They're, they're part of, you know, they're not Canaanites. But it says that there was peace between Habin, the king of Canaanites, and her husband, Hebor, and her clan, and their, their group of tents that, had, that were sojourning in the area. They were on the Canaanite side. And so that's why Sisera runs there. He's fully expecting uh, asylum and to be hidden and to be protected by these people who are basically part of his, you know, his king's uh, subjects. And you know what that makes her? That makes Jael almost exactly like Rahab the prostitute in the early part uh, of the book of, of Joshua where the city of Jericho is taken by the Lord. And Rahab is mentioned by James as a paragon of faith and her story as a description of what true faith really is. Why? Because Rahab... Once she figures out who God is and who, that the people of Israel are God's people and that God is not just a God, but the God, she calls him the God of heaven and earth, that is a clear sign that, that, that Rahab has figured out that God is the real God. And so what does she do? She breaks rank with her own evil culture and with her own evil alliances and she joins herself to God's people by that act. And James says that's an act of faith. And so Jael, really in the same way, she figures out who God is, the turn of the battle. And so she breaks with the evil alliances of her clan and she sides with Israel. She shows up, she trusts God. So when this happens, she knows exactly what to do. She's an ordinary girl who happened to be there and God uses her because she's so ordinary to finish the story in such a way that she is clearly not glorified, but she becomes transparent as, as the person who God chose, who's very ordinary to glorify himself. And that is a picture of salvation. What Jael did, that's what salvation is all about. Jesus has already won the battle. The battle's won. The tides have turned. The enemy is on the run. Even though it may not look like or feel like it right now in our culture, the enemy is on the run. 
Uh, he has lost his tactical advantage. Uh, there is fear and panic in his heart. Jesus is now ruling in heaven, destroying all of his enemies before him. Uh, and God is calling people. If you don't know the Lord, he's calling people to break with your evil, alliances with evil and cast your lot with God, the God of heaven and earth and with his people. Uh, it is never too late or never wrong to break with your evil alliances. Uh, it is never morally wrong to betray your alliances with evil in favor of joining with God. And God accepts anyone. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be lucky. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be anything. All you have to do is show up and say, God, I'm with you. From this point forward, I am with you. And for the rest of us, those who know God already, this is great news. We don't have to be wise. We don't have to be smart. We don't have to be any of those things. We don't have to have, uh, you know, the best this or the best that or be the smartest at this or the most skilled at that. What we have to do is show up and trust God. Trust what God's word says. And trust that he, uh, very well, as he has throughout history, take very ordinary people and use us to do something very extraordinary in the world precisely because we're ordinary. It will be clear to the world that we did not accomplish any, any, anything that God may accomplish through it, but God in his power and his wisdom did. And that's our call for us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, even in crazy stories like this, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of your power and wisdom shows through. We see how perfect you are. Lord, we repent and we ask that you would forgive us uh, in any way that we have as leaders in the church failed to show up, especially the men. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would take your call to lead and to, be, to lead by being re responsible for the welfare of everyone else in the church and to sacrifice ourselves and our own comforts in order to do so. We pray that you would take that seriously and we would take it seriously we pray lord that you would raise up for us men who will be elders and ministry leaders uh and deacons and small group leaders in, in every area of of ministry lord but as we are also speaking through all the vital roles of women in ministry too lord we pray that you would raise up strong women to be to be teachers among us lord uh we pray that you would raise up women to be spiritual mothers to serve in the diaconate uh, to be workers in Christ. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would raise us up and let us know that it's not our power. Let us not be afraid, knowing that, that you've called us to show up, to show up and trust you. We pray you would make that clear as how we should move in that direction and that we would move with you like water with no resistance just following and doing your will, even as the angels do in heaven, we pray, Lord. And we pray that you would use us very ordinary people to do something extraordinary. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.